welcome to Making Tech Better, MadeTech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. For us, that means empowering your teams to collaborate compassionately on creating high-quality software that delivers value quickly to the people that really matter, the users. My name is Claire Sudbury and my pronouns are she and her. I've been a software engineer for 21 years. I do a lot of speaking and writing on the topic of software delivery, and I'm a lead engineer with Made Tech. On the 12th of January, I caught up with John Skeet. John is famous for the book C Sharp in Depth, which is currently in its fourth edition, but he's infamous for his contributions to Stack Overflow. For those that don't know, Stack Overflow is the website that all software engineers turn to to ask questions about anything to do with software development. And the amazing thing about John is that he's always there with an answer. He's also a truly lovely bloke, and it was a delight to catch up with him to talk about coding in his spare time via his open source contributions and also via a drum kit explorer that he's been working on and about what's different between working on code in your spare time and working on code for your job and how they influence each other. Hello, John. Hello. (laughs) It's fantastic to have you here. I'm so pleased to see you. Very nice to be here. So, John, according to your Twitter profile, you're a Christian, husband to Holly Webb, the children's author, Father, feminist, software engineer, currently at Google, author, Stack Overflow contributor, and your pronouns are he, him. Can we dig into all of that a little bit more? Absolutely. Tell us a bit about Google. What do you do there? So I'm currently responsible for the .NET libraries for accessing Google Cloud services um, and other services. So While I primarily deal with things like Google Cloud Storage and Cloud Spanner, uh, I am also responsible for things like the YouTube API and Calendar API, not the back end side of it, which is far too difficult for me to sort out, (laughs) um, but the the client libraries that uh, that talk to those. And they're primarily auto-generated libraries. So I look after the generation process and the generators themselves, which can be two very different things, uh, and also any manual code that needs to go along alongside that generated code just to make things that bit simpler. Or in the case of something like Spanner, ADO.NET implementation so that .NET developers can have a reasonably idiomatic experience even though they're not talking to a SQL Server or Postgres. Wow, so that's that's a lot of fascinating stuff. I'd really love to know more, but I am going to move on because we'll end up talking about that all day. <laughs> so what about your open source contributions? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I've got quite a few open source projects, uh, really, although not many of them get updated very often. I have one repository that's full of demo code, which is something we'll come on to later on, I think, around drum kits. And this is sort of stuff I blog about. There can be code behind it. And likewise, if I'm giving conference talks, I'll have demos and things. So I have a repository where all of that goes. But my main useful contribution is via Nodatime, which is a date and time library as an alternative to system.datetime, system.datetime offset, etc. within the .NET world. Mm. And what makes it special? Why would people want to use it rather than the standard ones? 
So the idea is it makes your life harder than easier <laughs> in terms of it makes you think carefully about decisions that you should be thinking about. And when you've come up with the answer to that question, you know, whatever decision it is, it should make it easy to express that in code that is readable and obvious what that decision is. Ah. Whereas the date time types in .NET, they're kind of fuzzy. So you've got system.datetime itself, which has this kind property, which says, well, am I a local date and time, local to the system time zone, or am I a UTC date and time, or am I in some unspecified time zone? And that in itself is sort of, well, how do I deal with that? It's like having a number type, which is sometimes an integer and sometimes a double, and you have to ask a property. So in Node Time, there are far, far more types involved. I could start reeling them off, but we get to probably about 20 fairly quickly. Now, you know, there's a core of maybe eight or something like that, but you have far more types. And that means that any developer using Node Time has to think, crikey, which of those many types am I actually talking about? And that's something you should be thinking about. And then when you've made that decision, you express it in the type system and things are designed to go nicely. There's some fairly hard to read code within Node Time itself. You know, I, I do what I can, but there's some difficult stuff. Uh, but I've put a lot of thought and it's it's proved very useful in terms of learning about API design because I can take my time over it. I don't have particular deadlines for Node Time. So if I'm not sure of what to do, okay, try something, get a bit of feedback, try something else, be very careful around releasing. But yeah, that's the, the heart of the Node Time philosophy is make things harder than easier. Yeah, and that, that's really interesting because that is what we're going to be talking about today is that the balance between and the relationship between work that you do that is not officially your job and, and work that you do that, that is your job. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you are a person who has done a lot of different things. One <laughs> of the things you've done is, is written a book. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that as well? Yes, so the I've contributed to a few books, but the book I'm best known for and the one that I've put certainly the most time into over the years is C Sharp In Depth, which is currently in its fourth edition. At some point when I have, you know, oodles of time, which I'm sure will be any time now, uh, <laughs> I, I need to start on a fifth edition. Um, I, I have a copy of C Sharp In Depth. I don't know which edition it is, but I think I might have had it for 20 years. Would that be <laughs> uh, possible? Not 20. No, um, not that long. 15, maybe? So the first author copies were shipped to my house when I was actually in Mountain View doing Googler orientation. Uh, so that was in 2008. Oh, so only 12 years. Oh, I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> when you've been around a while, time just does very strange things. <laughs> and then the thing that first brought you to my attention, I think, is your contributions to Stack Overflow. And that is what a lot of people will know you for. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's sort of, it's like everyone else's contributions to Stack Overflow. I go, I have a look at questions that I might be able to answer, or I go with a question to ask. And I write hopefully good answers and I write hopefully good questions. I got into it um, actually via a book review and I had a look. I did the vanity, let's search for C Sharp in depth, search for <laughs> John Skeet and see whether there are questions about the book that I could answer. And then I found a few more questions and I started, I think one day after I joined, I wrote a blog post saying, 
I think this could become a significant part of my life. I had no idea how significant, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, when you say you're just like anybody else, you're probably not like most Stack Overflow contributors. In the, the reason your name is associated with Stack Overflow is just the sheer prolificness. Prolificity? I've no idea what that word should be. <laughs> how prolific you are on Stack Overflow, because you answer a lot of questions. I certainly did. I, I answer far fewer now than I used to back in my heyday, as it were, of probably five, six, seven years ago. I find fewer questions that I think are valuable for me to answer these days. I add quite a few comments asking people to improve their questions, and then someone else may answer them later on. That's probably what most of my activity is now. It's possible that my standards have changed over time as to what I would consider answering. But I'm not entirely convinced about that. I think things just change over time. But I certainly, I still browse it multiple times a day and will answer anything that looks interesting enough. Yeah. That really gets me in, particularly if I don't know the answer when I read the question. That will make it much more likely that I will answer the question. Mm. I know that sounds a bit weird. No, that does make sense. If you give me something I don't know about the language, it's like, I want to know. Yeah, yeah. And just the simple thing of if you're asking a question on Stack Overflow, read it back and try to imagine yourself being not you. Absolutely. <laughs> Somebody who's going to try and answer. <laughs> I don't know whether you're effectively quoting from a blog post I wrote, I think back in 2010, which I made the mistake of calling it writing the perfect question. And I should have called it writing a good question because we're not looking for perfection, mm -hmm. but we are looking for something reasonable. And I precisely said that, you know, read it as if you were trying to answer it. And does it make sense? Does it rely on knowledge that you have but isn't in the question? Does it contain a load of stuff that is irrelevant? And slightly oddly, going back to my Christian roots of, you know, do unto others as you would have done to you um love one another mm, yeah yeah I, I actually i hadn't read that particular blog post but i think that we're just aligned here yeah <laughs> one of my big principles in life is to try and imagine what it feels like to be the other person right what does it feel like to be in their shoes you know yes and that it just makes a big difference in so many different areas absolutely whether you're raising a bug or responding to someone else's bug you know if if someone has raised a bug and it's actually not a problem it's working as intended you can still show compassion and empathy and say okay i understand why this feels like a problem to you here's why it's designed like that here's how you can work around that yes. um yes and likewise if you're raising an issue ranting and raving and fuming and casting aspersions on the quality of the developers who came up with the design or whatever doesn't really help anyone and imagine you're on the other side of the screen yeah so the last thing that i just wanted to quickly ask you about was uh, in your twitter profile you describe yourself as a feminist and that's actually how you and i first got talking to each other because we were talking about um, gender balance at, at conferences absolutely um so tell us a bit about that you know about that kind of part of your identity if you like i would say that that started around, I think it was either five or six years ago, I was browsing a geek feminist wikia and read a few things and thought, I want to know more. Mm -hmm. And I would always have regarded myself as someone who treats equality as an important thing, but probably wouldn't have defined myself as a feminist before. Partly, there's something that feminism as a word emphasises inequality in a particular direction and there are certainly areas where inequality 
favours women over men and feminism as a word seems to sort of ignore that. Uh, so I would have talked about human equality, gender equality rather than feminism. Now, I've changed my mind on that partly because the vast, vast, vast majority of inequalities do adversely affect women. And yeah, let's make no bones about that. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I changed my mind about equality as an important thing, so much as I started opening my eyes as to just the level of inequality that women and people of colour and disabled people and those with neurodivergence, etc. The, the whole spectrum of inequalities I started to wake up to that a little bit more. Uh, so having read this feminist wikia, I ordered a few books in particular, Everyday Sexism by Laura Bates, which is a spectacularly good sort of introduction and wake up call for those who are thinking, well, this is all overblown. Show me some evidence. And she does like mm -hmm. absolutely definitively all over the place. In our industry, we tend to say, you know, well, we're not going to rely on anecdotes. There has to be data. And there's plenty of data around on that front. Yeah. I read a really good post uh, by a woman addressing men who identify as feminists and giving some advice, which was really useful advice. And part of it is you know, you'll get things wrong. You will mess up and you will be taken to task for that. And that's the right thing to happen. And you should just acknowledge it, say sorry, and go back to being as good an ally as you can because you can't close your eyes to it. Once you've seen the inequality, you can't just go back to sleep. Mm. And that was a, a really powerful point. So yeah, that started five or six years ago. And then about a year later, the Women's Equality Party in the UK was founded. And that's been a significant part of my life in that I'm a treasurer for our local branch. I've helped out on elections, you know, supporting our, our local branch members and support financially because it's something that I believe needs to be you know, supported. Uh, likewise, when people from companies ask me to give a talk to their employees, one of the things they often say is, you know, we'll pay whatever your going rate is for giving a talk. And I can't actually accept any money under my Google contract. I can't accept money for talking. But what I can say is, uh, please could you make a donation to ideally a local charity supporting underrepresented communities within tech? And that's usually gone down very well with talk organisers. And it's been a way that it's not a way of me giving back so much as just, you know, hoping to nudge people in the right direction. Mm, that's wonderful. That's a great idea as well. I haven't come across that before. Okay, so when I first asked you, invited you to come on the podcast and I asked you what you'd like to talk about and one of the things that you suggested was your drum kit explorer. So tell us a bit about it. Right, so let's start with I am not a good drummer by any, any means. Uh, <laughs> but I started drumming, it's now a year and a half ago. Um, on most electronic drum kits, you might have several kits that you can switch between so that say you hit the snare drum, do you want that to sound like a maple snare drum or a steel snare drum, etc.? And a kit is a collection of configuration options for all the pads on the kit. So you might have one that is a sort of Latin American feel for a samba or whatever, and then you've got a heavy metal one. And if you are gigging, then you may well switch between them and you don't want to have to reset every individual little knob and dial and there are huge, huge numbers, like hundreds of thousands of settings in total. So a kit is sort of a collection of presets. Yeah. 
And I actually, I've made a little bit of music using computers myself. And so the way that I've often seen it is that each different drum sound is associated with a note on a keyboard. So if you were playing middle C, for instance, that would actually be a hi-hat. And so basically you've got all of the notes on eight octaves or whatever, and each note is a different drum sound. Right. And then you choose a different drum kit and the notes will now be assigned to different sounds. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, sorry, carry on. So I took the drum kit home and enjoyed playing with it and then started thinking, okay, well, I bought this so that I could do things other than just hitting the drums, fun as that was and still is, and started looking into it, went down a few rat holes that weren't productive because that's part of experimentation, and then found a few pages on SysX, which is a kind of MIDI command, which is a vendor-specific MIDI command. And I found, wonderfully, Roland produce a long MIDI implementation piece of documentation for each drum kit. Mm. So I had to do a bit of reading round and they've got their own checksumming thing. But it didn't take too long before I had a console app that I could say, please tell me the name of the current kit. And it came back saying heavy metal or whatever it was. And it's like, okay, and now can I change the name of the kit with this console app? Oh, yes, I can. Oh. That tiny amount of experimentation in a console app is what made me think, okay, now I can start building a GUI. Yeah. That using a console app to start with has been my mode of experimentation. So just within lockdown, I've been, I've been buying and playing with a lot of kit. So there's a few things there that I'd like to ask more about. So one of the things was just quickly, you mentioned MIDI. So for those who don't know what MIDI is, because when you're dealing with music and computers, you quite often, particularly when there are instruments involved, MIDI is a thing that you quite often come across. Because just briefly tell us what MIDI is. So you've sort of given all the detail in a way. <laughs> MIDI is a communication protocol, usually between a computer and an instrument of some description, although it could be between two instruments, I believe. And there are standardised bits and non-standardised bits. So the, the standardised bits are things like a note-on command, which says either someone has pressed a note on a keyboard or played a note on the electric violin that you've got or whatever it is, and then there's a note-off command. And it can be someone has pressed this or please act as if someone had pressed this. Mm. So MIDI 1 is unidirectional, but usually you get one channel in each direction. Mm -hmm. So I've got a keyboard in the background here, and if I hook that up via MIDI, I can send a command saying note on, and there has recently been MIDI 2, which means that finally we get bidirectional communications because I think the MIDI group understood that, hey, almost everyone has got these two one-directional channels. And just as an example of how that makes things difficult, you kind of, you expect a sort of request response idea. So if I want to ask my drum kit, what is the name of the current kit? I tend to think in terms of something like HTTP. I will make an HTTP request and it will come back with a response. Well, you've only got one-directional channels, so you can't really do that. Instead, you send a command on one channel and the drum kit will send a command on another channel. And you've got to do all the pairing up between the two and kind of mm. wait and see, well, have I have I not seen anything within a couple of seconds? Oh, it's probably failed. Maybe I'll send my command again. And it's all a bit clunky, to be honest. That was the first thing that I thought, I need a better abstraction over this. So the C-sharp code that I've got abstracts all that so you can send a request and expect a response and it does all the, the matching up.
I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm pretty choosy about who I'll work for, but there's lots to love about Made Tech. We're software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. There's a real passion to make a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. And if you go to madetech.com slash resources slash books, you'll find that we have a couple of free books available, Modernizing Legacy Applications in the Public Sector and Building High-Performance Agile Teams. We're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the North of England via our Manchester office. You can find out more about that if you go to madetech.com slash careers. If you join our mailing list, you'll get extra podcast content as well as finding out more about Made Tech. You'll find a link in the description. Before we return to John's interview, just a quick reminder that before the break, we were talking about how computers use the MIDI protocol to communicate with musical instruments. The other thing, very quickly, you mentioned console app. And I mean, I may as well say that I know that people who aren't Windows developers, console app is quite a Windows developers kind of uh, terminology. Right. When Windows developers say console app, what they mean is something that's operating on the command line. And it's quite interesting when I've worked with people who aren't Windows developers, they're not familiar with that terminology. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, it's almost sort of that's the default for non-Windows developers. Exactly, yes. A non-Windows developer might say, right, I'm writing a GUI app or I'm writing an app. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Windows, you would say, I'm writing an app or I'm writing a console app. Yes. Because just app is expected to be a GUI. Or probably these days, actually, it's an app is expected to be a web app and anything running locally is kind of an anomaly. Yes, but yes. That's, that's the evolution of stuff. I too, having been around for a while, have, uh, <laughs> have, have kind of crossed that divide from originally all of the software that I wrote was desktop applications and web development was a thing that I had to get my head around. Right. Uh, but these days, everybody just assumes that... But both web and GUI... Uh, your hello world of a web app or a GUI app are so, so much bigger, typically, than the hello world of a console app. Yeah. And actually, saying typically, that's because I've recently been working on functions and Google Cloud functions and the .NET functions framework that enables that. And I don't know whether it's because I have a background where I'm very keen on making simple things simple, but if you want to write a hello world function in the .NET Functions framework and then deploy it to Google Cloud Functions, that really is tiny. And you can do it with like two command lines and then edit one line of code. Obviously, you can make things more complex uh, when you need to, but I really wanted to keep the simple situation as simple as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of simplicity because, I mean, at the end of the day, what you want is something that is maintainable and understandable both by your future self and by other people yeah although i would say that things that need to be maintainable are typically going to be more complex anyway but when you're trying to learn something new so if i'm learning a new c-sharp feature yeah do i want to do so in the context where i'm in a console app and i've got a class declaration and a method declaration main and that's potentially all i need or do I want to do it in a web application where I've got program.cs and a startup and maybe a view and a controller and a model? Like 
I've got five classes already and I haven't written a line of code. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, I think it's the experimentation. If I'm learning one new concept, I want that concept to be front and centre and ideally kind of the only thing on the screen. Yes. Yes. Whereas if someone says, okay, I want to know how virtual methods work. So I'll create a Windows GUI with a button on. And when I press the button, it will execute some code. Like, that's not the easiest way of getting some code to execute. Mm -hmm. Yes. Console apps are great. And they seem to be within Windows developers or C-sharp developers. I don't think enough people value console apps. Yes, yes. In recent years, I have learned a lot of different languages and have moved around between frameworks. I now have both a Windows laptop and a Mac, and I switch between them deliberately because I want to be able to be ambidextrous, so to speak. And one of the things that has come out of that, because I've learned Ruby and Python and, and various functional languages, is that I have absolutely realised the value of console apps or command line apps and just being able to get something out there quickly and use it to learn concepts right. without, like you say, without the cruft and, and the boilerplate that can get in the way of learning. And as well as learning, it's great for if you're providing a repro for a bug, a way of reproducing a bug, then you want everything else in your application that's not related to the bug to go away. Yeah. Is the problem anything to do with the database? No, it's not. Okay, I'll remove the database from my app. Is it anything to do with the GUI? No, it's not. So I'll remove it and get it down to a console app. You know, I've got 20 classes left. Is it in this set of classes? Or can I remove those and still demonstrate the problem? And you get down to a tiny, tiny thing. Mm -hmm. And usually when I'm in that mode of debugging and diagnosing a problem, usually I find the problem myself without having to ask. Now that's okay with 25 years of experience, but I think if we could teach software engineers that skill, this is something I've been passionate about for a while, but I haven't really found the right way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, is there any crossover between the work that you do with the DrumKit Explorer and what you do at Google? And I don't necessarily mean literally in the actual code being shared or anything, but in the approach or, or the techniques or the, the things that you know, is there connection? So there's definitely connection. There are significant differences as well, mostly due to laziness, but there are connections in terms of how I learn things. And there, there will be, I can't remember the exact example, which is frustrating, but I remember sometime last year, I came up with a way of doing something at work, which was absolutely based on something I had just been researching for the DrumKit Explorer the previous week or something. It was just a really good coincidence. And that's happened much more between Noda time and work in that I tend to advance Noda time in terms of C-sharp language features and .NET framework and using DocFX to produce documentation. And I can experiment there in free time. And then I've got all that knowledge and experience waiting for me when I decide to use those language features, use DocFX, etc., in my work environment. Sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes I'll have a problem reported to me in work and think, oh, that's going to affect node time as well. I need to make sure I sort that out as well or whatever. But there's a lot of crossover in terms of learning and ways of learning. So I do tend to approach problems the same way if I'm trying to reproduce an issue for a customer. And if they've given me a snippet of code, I will put that into a console app just as I started on the DrumKit Explorer with a console app 
The the bit where they're different because of laziness is in terms of testing. Node time, I hasten to add, is very well tested, has, I think when it runs all its tests, it's 10, 12,000 tests, a lot of which are effectively generated across many cultures and things. DrumKit Explorer has gone from being completely untested, other than, you know, by me running it, to testable. Mm -hmm. Certainly if I were writing this for anything other than fun would be, I need a bevy of unit tests and some integration tests, etc. around all the code I've got. In reality, I haven't got time for that. I've got other stuff to be playing with. And actually there have been relatively few bugs that I've found that would have been caught with tests. Mm. I think because of the kind of app it is that most of the difficulty is in the design rather than the implementation. Mm -hmm. The, is my approach going to work is much harder to test. That's really interesting because I, I had a similar experience where I was writing a personal app. It was a little game. It was actually a, an iOS mobile app. And I started with very few tests. And then I got to a point where I wanted to refactor. And at that point, my lack of tests really hampered me because the problem was it was really hard for me to know after I'd kind of shuffled things around and made some significant changes whether I'd broken anything. Right. And at that point, if I'd have had tests, then I would have known, no, it's okay, everything still works. Yes, um, yes. And, and that was when I did realise that I was actually losing time as a result of not having tests. Right. And I, I, I paused, wrote tests and then continued and everything became a lot easier. And it's entirely possible that I have lost time by doing this as well. It's very hard to tell when you're in the thick of it mm. how much time you're losing. Yeah. OK, so I just noticed the time. This yes. is like absolutely <laughs> flown by. So very quickly, I'm going to ask you the questions that I told you I was going to ask. Yep. So one is, can you, and I, I don't know if you have time to think about this, but are you able to tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing that's untrue? Right. So one of these is that I got together with my wife, Holly, by virtue of a play written in Greek, Aristophanes' Birds, and I don't know any Greek. I had hundreds of lines that I didn't really know what I was saying. <laughs> so that's one thing. Okay. And the other thing is I have recently been giving advice on how we might change the duration of a second in terms of the SI unit. Wow. Okay. So listeners can decide which of those sounds more likely. Yeah. At the end, I will ask you what the true answer yep. is. Uh, but uh, listeners will have to subscribe in order to get those answers. Um, so th my other question was, who in this industry are you inspired by? So several people for different reasons. I am definitely inspired by the many women who I've heard the terrible times they've had and they have kept going in spite of things mm -hmm. and at the same time pushed back against it and encouraged others to do so. There's a whole week of talk for half an hour about that, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm also inspired by two folks, two men, in fact, within the C-sharp world, uh, Eric Lippert and Mads Torgerson, both of whom I know reasonably well and... They're inspiring because both of them are simultaneously extremely smart and really nice. <laughs> they are some of the nicest people. They're good company and compassionate company. And that inspires me more than their technical brilliance. Wonderful. And it, it's the combination of the two that's really impressive. 
Yeah, brilliant. Okay. And so to end on a high, what's the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? It could be either work related or non-work related. So, you know, we're just coming out of Christmas and I had a nice Christmas. It was a Christmas without visiting people and without having any visitors. And while that you might expect that to be a downside, it was quite a novel and nice experience to have time off around Christmas where we didn't fill the calendar with, you know, I love musical theatre. Normally we would go and see one or two musicals and we couldn't do that. But it did mean I had more time just to actually relax a bit. Mm. In fact, I was doing various things for the church and it ended up being less relaxing than one might expect. Uh, <laughs> but, but even so, just the fact that lockdown has forced us to stay at home more I quite like staying at home and I'm enjoying that aspect of it, even though I'm missing travelling and musical theatre and, and seeing people at the same time. Yeah, I had a similar experience for my Christmas. OK, so finally, where can people find you and do you have anything coming up that you'd like people to know about? So I guess I can reveal that I am working on another book as a contributor and details of that TBD. Uh, I don't know how public things are on that front yet, okay. but just that's just a little tease. And you can find me. I'm John Skeet, all one word, J-O-N. There's no H in my name. John Skeet on Twitter or find me on Stack Overflow. If you wish to email me, my email address is on Stack Overflow, but there's also a link to a blog post saying, before you email me, you know, is this really appropriate? Mm -hmm. And with some guidance on maybe you should be asking a Stack Overflow question instead. I'm jskeet on GitHub, so you can find me in a bunch of different GitHub repos. And those are probably the best places to find me. Fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us, John. My pleasure. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And uh, I hope that the whole of the rest of 2021 and beyond <laughs> goes really well for you. Thank you. You too. It was great to talk to John. I love that we managed to cover so many topics from equality and feminism in tech all the way to how to craft a decent question on platforms like Stack Overflow so that not only do you learn something from it, other people do too. My experience of software development improved vastly when I started doing it in my spare time as well as for my job. When you do this, it's likely that your hobby will fertilise your job and vice versa. So I really enjoyed the insights I got from John on exactly that topic. How experimentation comes into it when you're working away from work. And on how he's learnt about debugging by stripping things down to their bare essentials. I also really enjoyed the fact that we got to talk about the value of testing in different contexts even if I didn't entirely agree. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to story time. Storytelling is useful for teaching, for unlocking empathy, and for creating a sense of shared connection and trust in your teams. I love telling stories to both children and adults. I'm actually a lapsed member of the UK Society for Storytelling. So the plan is that I'm going to be using stories to illustrate various points about effective software development. This is a folk story. 
The most famous version will be familiar to a lot of parents of small children. It's the fantastic book A Squash and a Squeeze by Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler. I'm tempted to read the book out just so that I can say, my ass is a squash and a squeeze, but I won't subject you to that. I've also come across the story at a storytelling festival at Wenlock Edge in Shropshire, and it is in fact an old Yiddish folktale. But my favourite version is the first one I ever saw, which was a book I had as a small child called Huit Enfants et un Bébé by Leonor Klein. I loved it when I was small. It's how I learnt French. And in this version, the main character has eight children and a baby, which is the translation of the title. But the basic story is always the same. The main character visits a figure of authority, a wise man, the mayor, and they complain that their house is too small. The wise person then advises them to bring an animal into the house, which they do, and it doesn't make things better. So they go back and complain and are told to bring yet another animal into the house. And this happens a few times, each time the main character getting more and more frustrated and upset. And this is where we get to my favourite page in the French version, which is simply a page full of sound effects. Brick, brack, zoom, zang, wow, wow, woof, meow, meow, chip, chip, silence, impossible. So after this chaos, they are finally advised to take the animals away again. And suddenly they're happy. In the French version, tout le monde est heureux. Everybody is happy. But it's not just a folk tale. I have my own personal version of this story. In 2007, I was made redundant after 12 years as a software engineer, and I decided that I was fed up with IT and wanted a complete change. So I became a freelance writer and it didn't go great. I didn't manage to make an income from it and it wasn't the nirvana I thought it was going to be. So then I decided to retrain as a high school maths teacher and that was even worse. I was regularly getting four hours sleep a night. It was extremely stressful. And in the end, in 2011, four years after leaving the industry, I came back into IT as a software engineer again. And it felt amazing. I had decent working hours. Nobody was asking me to force teenagers to learn maths in circumstances beyond their control. And nobody was shouting at me, swearing at me or throwing things at me as part of my daily job. It was the equivalent of inviting a hen, a goat, a pig and a cow into my life and then back out again. So what can we learn from this story? Well, it's slightly tricky. I wouldn't prescribe deliberate hardship to people who are struggling. I still bear the scars of being a teacher. But I do now keep a daily gratitude diary. And when things are bad, I think how they could be worse and how they have been much worse. And the point of the story is to not focus on the negatives of any situation, but rather to appreciate the positives. For instance, after the pandemic is over, I hope I'll never again take for granted the simple ability of being in the same room as my colleagues. For our final Making Life Better section, I ask around for suggestions for small things that we can do to make the world a better place. 
And as a result, I've discovered this amazing book called Change the World for a Fiver, which was recommended by my colleague Adam Friday. This book was created as part of We Are What We Do, which is a community links project. And the very first suggestion in the book is very simple. It just says, capture a child's imagination. When kids ask you to read a story to them, it's because they know something you don't. They know you'll both feel richer for the experience. And obviously, I couldn't resist sharing that one, given my love of storytelling. And that's the end of another episode. You can find me on Twitter at Claire Sudbury, which might not be spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire, and Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery, with E-R-Y at the end. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Making Tech Bet 2. That's Making T-E-C-H-B-E-T-T-2. Do come and say hello, give us your feedback, give us any contributions you have for future episodes, or just have a chat with us. Thank you to Rose for editing and thank you to Richard Murray for the music. You'll find a link in the description. Also in the description is a link for subscribing for extra content. We'll be releasing new episodes every fortnight. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.